so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Uh, five foot three. Okay. I didn't know that. You wear tall shoes. I do. Yeah. Nice. Anytime I'm like feeling nervous, I put on my heels. Sometimes I just wear them at the Leland house by myself. <laughs> when you're nervous? Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Made me feel a little more confident. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is a special guest, our colleague who runs the D.C. office, the Leland House, we call it, Hannah Daniel. Welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here. It's exciting. You're so much prettier of a guest host than uh, Brent. Well, he's not a guest host, but you're... (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so it's much better looking at your face than his. <laughs> we, we see who's really in charge uh, here this yes, week. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, we're so glad to have you, and we are excited for the conversation that we're going to have about your work in D.C. and what's happening this fall. But before we get into that, let's start with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. And I have two pieces for us. The first is one by Tim Scheiderer, and he's actually in D.C., Hannah, and its title is Explaining the Sin of Abortion in an Age-Appropriate Way, How to Help Your Children Grasp the Devastating Effects of Sin and the Hope of the Gospel. And so at first, it may cause you to shudder to think about explaining abortion to children or to our children. And as Tim shares in the beginning of the article, the concept of abortion and the word is not something they're going to be able to escape in this day and age because it's everywhere, especially with the overturning of Roe. So even maybe even at school or just as they're watching a show or whatever it might be, they may come to you and say, mom, dad, what is abortion? And so We need to be able to have an answer for them at the right time as we gauge as their guardians, their parents, and we can share in an age-appropriate way. And one of the things that Tim shares is that it's hard for a child to grasp such a wicked sin. And so he, he talks about setting a mental framework for them, and he walks through Romans 1, and he talks about how sin causes confusion and how it causes darkness and how it causes self-delusion. And then he uses a biblical illustration. And I really think this is helpful for explaining any number of sins. You don't have to go into detail about what the sin is, but explaining this mental framework and the consequences that sin has on our lives is incredibly helpful. And then, of course, he closes with the hope of the gospel because we're not left in darkness, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he calls us to himself, and he offers forgiveness for whatever darkness we have walked in if we will trust in him. And so I really, really appreciated this article and how Tim laid everything out. 
And then secondly is a piece by Brandon Elrod, and he works for the North American Mission Board. And this Sunday is Global Hunger Sunday among Southern Baptist churches. And Brandon has written a piece to highlight that. It's titled, How Southern Baptists Are Meeting Increased World Hunger Needs. Churches Set to Recognize Global Hunger Sunday on August 28th. He talks about how the last few years have really exacerbated the severity of the hunger crisis. He says a 2021 report released by agencies associated with the United Nations stated that 2.3 billion people faced moderate to severe challenges to obtaining enough food to eat, with a total population facing severe insecurity climbing to an estimated 924 million. So COVID has had an effect on that. In addition, the war in Ukraine, I did not realize this, but Ukraine and Russia together, as he states in the article, account for a third of the world's wheat and barley exports, which is so interesting. While Russia and Belarus are numbers two and three on the world's list of producers of a key ingredient for fertilizer. So with what's going on over there with the war and the tragedy that's happening over there, you can imagine how that is upsetting people that are already struggling with hunger and food insecurity. And so this isn't something that we can look away from. And it feels overwhelming, feels so far away. We might not know how we can help. And that's where Global Hunger Relief, which is a part of NAM and their relief organization called Send Relief, that's where they step in. We can give to the Global Hunger Relief Fund, and we can help meet some of those hunger needs around the world. So I'd encourage you to check out this article and find out how you can be involved. Yeah, um, I think it's really important to put a focus on hunger this upcoming Sunday as we've seen that uh, just become a greater and greater issue both around the world, as you were mentioning, and even at home. Uh, that's something that our team in D.C. has been working on is, is trying to think creatively with policymakers about how we can better combat hunger um, both at home and abroad and help care for um, the most vulnerable here in our own country and around the world as we try to help meet their physical needs um, and allow them to be able to live lives where they can flourish and thrive and, and have what they need. That's a good reminder because when we meet people's physical needs, as we saw Jesus do and the disciples, then that potentially opens a door for us to be able to share with them their spiritual needs. And if we don't meet their physical needs like hunger, we eventually die <laughs> and we can't die before they hear the life saving, eternal life-changing truth of the gospel. And so it's important, and I know it's overwhelming, and uh, not everybody can do everything, but we can all do something. And so I'm thankful for the Southern Baptist Convention and the partnership that churches have together to where we can give to send relief, and then they can go out and do the work that they're equipped to do to meet some of these needs. We have several other pieces on our site that I would encourage you to look at. Uh, one of them is by our colleague, Alex Ward, and it's also about hunger and how we can't look away. Uh, but for now, Hannah, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, we're going to focus on your work in D.C., Hannah, with Congress set to reconvene this fall. So I'm excited for you to talk to us a little bit about that, pull back the curtain a little bit. So we talk about Congress reconvening. So what are they coming back together to do? And what does that look like on a typical day for someone like me who really doesn't know what the goings on in DC look like? 
Yeah, so Congress is coming back into session after taking a, a long recess for the month of August where they go home to their districts and states and meet with their constituents here about their concerns. Um, they also are doing quite a bit of campaigning as they are getting ready for the November midterms this year. Um, but they're coming back to a, a pretty full slate of things to do. Senate Majority Leader Schumer has said that he would like to bring the Respect for Marriage Act up for a vote um, in September when the Senate reconvenes. And this is a bill that really came out of the Dobbs decision where there was some fear that potentially this could set the precedent for other decisions such as the right to same-sex marriage or the right to contraception um, eventually being overturned by the court as well. Although that seems pretty unlikely, um, this was enough of a of a motivator for congressional Democrats in particular to uh, put bills to the floor in the House of Representatives and take a vote on both of those issues, both the right to contraception as well as the right to same-sex marriage. And um, the ERLC was active in those conversations as well and, and was working against both of those bills because they have some pretty harmful effects on religious liberty um, and other concerns as well. But it's looking like the Senate is going to take up the Respect for Marriage Act this fall. And the Respect for Marriage Act would essentially codify the right to same-sex marriage into law, um, essentially codifying the 2015 Obergefell decision. Um, but in addition to that, it really poses some serious religious liberty concerns, um, especially for people of faith who hold a traditional view of marriage as being between one man and one woman for life. Um, and in addition to that, it actually does even leave open the door for federal recognition of polygamy and of other pretty concerning things as well. And so we are really actively working against that bill and are, are hoping that it does not pass. But it did receive significant bipartisan support in the House of Representatives when it passed. And several Republican senators have indicated that they are considering supporting it. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how that ends up playing out in the next few weeks. The other main thing that the Senate is going to be coming back to do um, is to pass a budget to fund the government. Uh, the fiscal year ends at the end of September, which is where the government is currently funded through. Um, so generally, they try to go through what's called the appropriations process, where they release 12 different bills that each fund different parts of the government. And these are gigantic bills. They are so complex and really difficult to read. Um, but the House generally passes those first, and then um, it moves on to the Senate. But the House has not yet passed those. They've only passed six of them. Uh, the Senate has not taken up any of them. No bipartisan negotiations have even really been started. And so it's most likely that Congress is going to come back and pass what's called a continuing resolution to essentially just extend current levels of government funding through um, a set time. So potentially, most likely through the end of the year, um, once they are through the midterm elections that are coming up. So we're going to be um, working on that and are going to be working to ensure that things like the Hyde Amendment and the Walden Amendment that protect life and consciences for people of faith, um, that those are protected in a continuing resolution that's passed or um, in the appropriations process once that really begins in earnest. So Hannah, I wanted to go back and just ask a question about this Respect for Marriage Act, which we anticipate and we will have some uh, resources on our site coming up soon just explaining that. But you said there was some bipartisan support. So that was, was that a surprise that 
there were so many Republicans in favor of it? I think to some extent it was a surprise. So it's it's pretty interesting because most congressional members have not had to really talk or think about this issue much since before 2015 when Obergefell was decided. And so, and as we all know, since 2015, culture has shifted pretty rapidly on this issue. And so, you know, had you asked, had this bill been brought for a vote in 2015, there probably would have been little to none Republican support. But I think Republican lawmakers were, you know, they they know that their constituents and the culture broadly has really shifted on this issue. And so for them, I think they were feeling a tension in both directions of, you know, people of faith and religious groups that are obviously opposed to this kind of language, um, but also to the reality that many of their constituents don't see this as an issue or um, are in favor of same-sex marriage and of more broadly, LGBTQ rights. And so I think it was a bit of a surprise to see so many of them um, shift and change positions on that in such a short um, amount of time since um, they had previously spoken on this in 2015. And then you mentioned it being codified into law. So with Obergefell, I thought same-sex marriage is law now Mm -hmm. nationally. So if something's codified, what does that mean? Essentially, that means that it has been put into law by an act of Congress rather than just judicial decision. And so since it's been done by an act of Congress, it will require an act of Congress to change it. And so that doesn't mean that it couldn't ever be changed, but it would take a a really strong majority in Congress, as well as a president who was willing to sign into law a new law that essentially reverses the old law that's been codified. Okay, so it just makes it harder, basically. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And I think it's important, too, for people to be able to read between the lines as far as some of these bills are titled. So the Respect for Marriage Act, we know it's not truly a respect for marriage because there is only one kind of marriage, and that's the kind that God has designed and laid down in His Word and that we hold to. So it's going to be important for Christians to know what we believe about this and to be willing to boldly and respectfully take a stand. Mm -hmm. So you have a couple other priorities this fall. and What are they? Yeah. And so I think as we are are looking ahead to the midterms, Congress often does not like to do a lot right before they have to try to get reelected, but they're going to, you know, handle the things that they have to handle. um, And then we'll be trying to get through the midterms and then we'll enter most likely what will be a a lame duck session of Congress where uh, you have lawmakers who, many of who won't be returning if they didn't win re-election, who only have about a month left in office. And that is always a little bit of a kind of a wild card and what is going to happen in that time. So it'll be really interesting to see what they decide to do after the elections. Um, One thing that we are really excited about uh, both this fall and even looking into the next Congress is that there is some new momentum around pro-family policies after the Dobbs decision. Um, you know, there's there's been a longstanding critique, even though it's largely unfounded of the pro-life movement, that um, they only care about saving pre-born babies, don't care about moms or children once they're born. And I think since post-Dobbs, we've seen a real pushback on that narrative as lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are really looking at how can we better support women in crisis, better support families as um, even as inflation is rising. And, and we all see how challenging it can be economically to raise a family. And we see women who 70 
73% of women cite um, financial insecurity as the primary reason that they have an abortion. And so I think there's been a, a growing trend in saying, how can we make it to where this woman feels like she has so many resources available to her that she just has no other option but to choose life. And so it's really encouraging to see these kind of proposals come come from both sides of the aisle. And, and we're going to be working on that um, both this fall and into the new year to see how can we support women and help them choose life um, and also give them the resources that they and their families need to thrive as they welcome a new um, a new child into their family or just as their kids grow up. That is an encouraging development because when you think about it, having, even as someone with resources, it's expensive to be pro-family, <laughs> to have a family. It costs less to have an abortion, which I was searching on my, um, in Google. So if, <laughs> if people are looking at my search history, they're going to be worried about me. But I was just wondering how much it costs. And according to Planned Parenthood, they said it can cost up to $750. But to have a child in the hospital costs a lot more than that. Let me tell you, even you think about adoption to adopt children is tens of thousands of dollars oftentimes and can take years. And so it is expensive. And it seems like as people who are pro-life and pro-family, we would want to do something to help mitigate those costs so that stumbling blocks to choosing life would be removed as much as they can be. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree with you. And, you know, we have all kinds of ways that we can help women and families uh, have the resources that they need to thrive through our churches, through our communities, and even through government as an instrument for good. We can uh, wrap around these women and their families and give them the tools that they need uh, to be able to choose life and then be able to have have a life where they can flourish and thrive um, and can provide for their children and be active members of our communities and our churches. And so I'm really encouraged by this development. One example of this, Hannah, that stands out to me because we just learned about it in our work chat on Slack. You know, we have the Psalm 139 project where we provide ultrasounds to pregnancy resource centers, life-saving ultrasounds. And I don't say we as in the ERLC alone, but churches who give and who willingly and sacrificially give. So there was one one uh, state and pregnancy resource center that just received an ultrasound machine and they had their first life saved. So they were parked in front of an abortion clinic and a woman came into the, the mobile unit and to get an ultrasound and she decided to choose life. And she had already had uh, two young children at home and really, I think they said was living out of her car sometimes, does not have a lot of resources and I was so encouraged because there was this faith-based home that had a spot opened and it had a two-room suite for a mom who already had children. And so this home was going to take her in and enable her to be able to choose life for this child and to foster life and flourishing in these other two little children that were already born. And it's just an example of the type of ministry that we're going to need to be doing in order to meet women in a post-Roe world. And it's, as we've been talking about costs, it's costly to choose obedience. It doesn't come without a cost. It's inconvenient, but it's good. And uh, we will see, I believe the Lord bless it. And so I hope to hear more stories of that, even as we see 
policy discussions around pro-family bills, et cetera, that are encouraging to us. That's amazing. And I I feel like it's so neat when we're able to have these really high-level discussions here in D.C. and debate policy and bills. Um, I think it's easy to lose sight of, you know, the one individual life that was saved and the mom who was able to be provided with the assistance that she needed. And those kind of stories and experiences really help color the discussions that we have here. I think that's one of the things that's so unique about ERLC is that we are able to engage in these policy discussions, but also have, in a lot of ways, boots on the ground through our churches. And we we know the experiences and hear the stories of what people are seeing on the front lines and on the ground and are able to communicate that then to legislators and lawmakers and help them understand what really is, is needed. So when Congress is in session, and I asked this a little bit earlier, uh, what what does a typical day in D.C. look like for you? Yeah, every day is a little bit different depending on what Congress decides to do. But generally, our our role here in D.C. is to be a moral voice in these conversations representing the interests of Southern Baptists. As these policy debates go on, we want to be able to speak in with truth and with grace into the conversations that are happening and offer offer a look at what is the real truth and encourage our lawmakers to pursue good policies that will help people flourish and will protect the vulnerable. So a typical day for us is often meeting with congressional offices and their staffers to provide feedback on a bill or to give input on an initiative that they are considering or to raise our concerns with another bill. We often write letters to Congress or to the administration raising concerns with an action that they've taken or um, encouraging them to oppose a certain piece of legislation that's upcoming. Um, and we also try to to say thank you when they do something that, you know, that we appreciate. We, we don't always want to just be complaining or saying, oh, you should do this instead. But we actually want to say thank you when, when they do good things and when we they do what, what we've asked them to do and when they listen to our concerns. And we, like I just was saying, we, we really try to convey what is happening both in our churches to lawmakers, and then we also try to convey what's happening here in D.C. in policy debates with lawmakers to our churches and help them understand how to think well about those issues and, and be knowledgeable and convictional about what they're doing and, and how they can respond to a lot of the really controversial issues and topics of our day. Well, it's obvious that D.C. Uh, is in good hands. Well, not um, Washington, D.C. as a whole, but Leland yeah, House. Are, yeah, <laughs> that Leland House is in good hands with you, Hannah. And so I just wanted to ask you just a fun question about your background. So you are young and, which is just kind of depressing to me when I think <laughs> about our age gap, and yet you're so knowledgeable about what you do and you do it with conviction. So I just wanted to know, how did you develop an interest in this world of policy? Yeah, I never really knew what I wanted to do growing up. Like when I was a kid and would play you know, pretend. I always had about five different pretend jobs. I was like, I'm going to be a pretend nurse and a pretend vet and a pretend teacher. I have never been one of those people that like, this is what I'm going to do. And 
I went into college and picked a major on the last possible day that I could. Um, and even then I chose to study economics because I could do a lot of different things with that. I, I was just hunting the ball down the road uh, for making an actual decision on what I wanted to do. But I, I really knew deep down that I wanted to do something where I could help people. I just didn't know what that should be. So I, I thought for a minute, maybe I will go on the mission field or maybe I will work at a nonprofit or whatever that might be. But in college, I, I really began to see politics actually as a way to help people. I think it normally has a really negative connotation and we think just about fighting and nothing getting done and all of the controversy that comes along with it. But I, I kind of began to connect the dots that politics matter because they impact policy and policy impacts the real lives of people and those people matter to God. And so, you know, in, in that sense, politics should matter to me because it affects people who, who God loves and who I'm called to love. And so I, I had an interest in politics and I had actually just personally really benefited from the work of ERLC and even as my own journey as I was considering what do I actually believe and why do I believe that and what does it mean for me to faithfully engage politics um, as a Christian. And so in all of that, found the ERLC and decided to do an internship um, my last semester of undergrad came to DC, was really unsure if whether I was going to love it or hate it. I, I really kind of came on a whim just because I was like, maybe this will be fun. I've like, I haven't liked anything else that I've tried to do. So maybe this will be good. I don't know. Um, and then ended up just absolutely falling in love with the work that the DC team did here, um, getting to advocate um, on behalf of Southern Baptists, as well as also getting to think well about how we as Christians can engage in politics broadly. And I loved that I got to do kind of both of those things here of the actual advocacy, caring for vulnerable people through policy, um, but also thinking more about um, faithful Christian engagement in the public square. And uh, once I once I got a taste as an intern, I, I didn't want to go away. So I, I briefly worked on another job and then came back last year and was really excited to get to dive deeper into policy work. I am by no means an expert, but it's been really fun to learn about all the different areas that we work in. We're fairly unique in that we work on so many different areas. Um, we work on policy issues uh, that include human dignity, religious liberty, marriage, family, justice, international issues. Uh, most organizations maybe only take one or two of those buckets um, and we take them all. And so it's been really neat to get to learn more about those things and learn from people who are actually experts and deepen my own knowledge and my own skills as I do advocacy work. Um, it just has really been a blast. Well, and you're a walking advertisement for the internship program. That <laughs> Yes, come intern. <laughs> yes, we need uh, quality interns. And look, we may discover that you are a jewel and you need to come work for us, which has happened time and time again. We have we have colleagues who were interns, and so we love it. Yes, send, send the people that you know and love that are college age to be interns with us. Hannah, when you were talking about not knowing what you wanted to be when you grew up, when I was little, I just remember I always wanted to be a singer. So I'd make my friends have karaoke contests with me when I they would that. come over. <laughs> I would uh, I would pretend and like make shows and make my little brothers be in them. Uh -huh. um, I love it. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, the world is glad that I didn't become a singer. Uh, also, I would be poor <laughs> if I did. 
But uh, we're so thankful to have you with us. We're thankful for just the way the Lord has used even the ERLC in your story, full circle, and for all the ways that you bless us and keep DC running. You're the queen of uh, the Leland House, as <laughs> we like to call you. So thank you for just uh, providing a window into what's happening in DC with Congress reconvening and some of our priorities this fall. And listeners, you can be praying for Hannah as she is running this office basically on her own right now in a season of transition. So just pray for her strength and wisdom and for uh, an abundance of help to come her way and for us to be faithful in what Southern Baptists have called us to do, and more importantly, what God has called us to do there in D.C. Amen to that. I send all of the help my way, uh, but I'm I'm really grateful to get to be here in this season. I, I feel like I get to do my dream job every day, and so it really has been so great to get to be here and doing this work, and I'm really glad to to get to join you today, Lindsay. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It is edited and mixed by Mark Owens. In addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is a leading voice on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for the Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.